right. I'll invite you to turn with me now to the book of Genesis once again. Genesis chapter 2. We covered last time through to verse 14 mainly, talking about God's creation of Adam specifically and then uh, the Garden of Eden. And today we're just going to look at verses 15 to 17. And as you said earlier, next week, uh, Marshall's going to take us through to the end of the chapter. So let's read together Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. I've said a couple of times as we've begun into Genesis that understanding Adam and his person and his work, his role, is an important part of understanding Christ. It helps us gain clarity on what Christ has done in his work. Adam was created not merely as the first man, but as a representative of mankind as a whole. There are certainly places where this seems clear in Genesis, but it is in later scripture, later revelation, where God makes this more explicit for us. For example, the text that was just read for us earlier from Romans chapter 5 is one such place. Last week we read from 1 Corinthians 15, another place where we see the, clear, the clarity of Adam being a representative of human beings. Likewise, when we look at Genesis 1 through 3, in light of later scriptures, it is also clear that God entered into a covenant with Adam as the representative of all mankind. That is, that while Adam owed obedience to God simply by the fact that God was the one who created him, God also imposed upon Adam a special arrangement in which certain promises were made to Adam if he were to continue in his state of innocence, that is, if he were to obey God. And at the same time, there was a threatened curse for Adam if he were to disobey God. And the name of this arrangement, the name that has commonly and historically been given to this arrangement, has been the covenant of works. And our text before us today is a key text to understanding this arrangement, this covenant. And again, if we can gain further grasp of this, it will help us better grasp the plight of mankind, even as we see it today. It helps us understand the biblical concept of imputation, having sin or righteousness imputed, it, imputed to another's account. It helps see and understand the proper distinction that we need to hold between faith and works, or what we might say law and gospel. In short, it helps us to better understand the gospel itself. And there are very few more helpful and beneficial things to the Christian life than gaining further clarity on the work of Christ. Now before we jump into these verses I want to first just give a brief summary, an overview of this covenant that God made with Adam, of this covenant of works. So I'll, I'll summarize it, overview it, and then we'll go into it in more detail. 
So the covenant of works refers to the understanding that upon creating Adam, God entered into a covenantal relationship with all of humanity, with Adam himself acting as the head of that covenant. He's the representative. You've probably maybe, you well, you're maybe familiar with the term that Adam was a federal head or federal headship. That word federal just comes from the Latin word for covenant. He is the covenant head of all of humanity. He's representing them. And if Adam obeyed what God set before him and so remain in his state of innocence in which he was created, then he would eventually have attained glory. That is, immutable, eternal life. That is, an eternal life that could not be changed, that could not be reversed. Right? We know Adam was created with the ability to, to sin. He was perfect, but he had the ability yet to die. It wasn't an immutable life, an unchangeable nature. And so that's what was before him. He could have attained that for himself and for those that he represented, for mankind. But, on the other hand, if he failed and sinned, then he would bring about death for himself and for all of his descendants. And of course, we know how this goes. We know that Adam failed. And instead of life, he plunged the world into death. His sin and his guilt imputed to all his descendants. In 1 Corinthians 15, the phrase, in Adam, all die. We are in him, with him, failing, and we all die in him. And this arrangement with Adam, this covenant of works as it is called, it provided no way of forgiveness. There was no atonement within that covenant to make up for it if Adam failed. It's simply the promise of death. It has been broken in light of Genesis 3, and it leaves all members of it cursed under that broken covenant, Adam and all in him. And so this is all important as prelude to understand the work of God's grace in and through Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished. Christ then comes as the last Adam to take up the charge, to undo what Adam did wrong and complete what Adam failed to do. That is to bring glory, to, bring, to win life for all who would be in Christ. Christ comes not simply for himself, but he comes on behalf of others. He comes as the head of the new covenant to satisfy God's wrath for our sins and to earn righteousness through his obedience to God's law. Remember, he was born under the law. He was given a mission to accomplish, and he does it as a representative of all the Father gives to him, and he does it with absolute perfection. So he offers himself on the cross, satisfies God's curse of death for our sins that we are all under because of what Adam has wrought and because we ourselves have sinned, of course. He satisfies that curse and provides us with righteousness that we do not have. And so Christ earned salvation by his work his merit, and then that salvation is then given. It is gifted freely in grace to sinners, and it is received then not by our works, but by faith in Christ who has done the work that is necessary. And so not only has Jesus come and done what Adam failed to do in winning life for all in him, 
but he has also undone this tremendous mess that Adam has ushered in with his sin. So with that overview, let's get into this. And I want to begin first by noting that God entered into a covenant with Adam. I'm obviously making that claim, and I want to hopefully now see it. This whole matter of whether it is right to speak of this as a covenant is something that is disputed, and it's disputed amongst Bible-believing Christians. One of the main reasons that it is disputed is that nowhere in Genesis 1 through 3 do we see the word covenant being used. There are other places like when God will make a covenant with Noah after the ark where it very explicitly and clearly says that God made a covenant with Noah. At Sinai, when God enters into the Sinaitic covenant, the Mosaic covenant with Israel, it's very clear God's establishing a covenant with the people. The word is used, the concept is there. There's also no question that Jesus brought about the new covenant in his blood. But we don't have that word used in the first three chapters of Genesis. Nevertheless, many have argued that the words before us in verses 15 to 17 of chapter 2 are the formal revealing of a covenant that God made with Adam. And so I want to just briefly state why I think that's appropriate and right to view this as a covenant. First of all, just... It's important course to realize that just because a word is not used it does not mean that the concept is not there this is a a very general rule of logic just because a word is not used doesn't mean the concept is not there and in this particular case just because the word covenant is not present it doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't a covenant here in fact we see this very thing with a later covenant that we find in Scripture. So everybody agrees that there is something called the Davidic covenant, that God established a covenant with David. And that is established in 2 Samuel chapter 7, very clearly. God makes these promises and swears an oath to David. But nowhere in that chapter do we find the word covenant being used to describe what's going on. It is not until 2 Samuel chapter 23 in verse 5 when David is uttering his last words that we first find this explicitly referred to as a covenant that the Lord made with Adam. And so very clearly, though the word covenant is not in 2 Samuel 7, later scripture reveals plainly to us in 2 Samuel 23 and again in Psalm 89 that God indeed, that was God establishing a covenant with David. So a similar thing is occurring here with Adam. The word is not used, but that is the best way to understand this. And in Hosea chapter 6 and verse 7, it says this, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. That is a, a reference there about Judah and Israel breaking their covenant with God, just as Adam broke a covenant with God. Isaiah 24, verse 5 is another place. It's talking about a judgment upon the whole earth, and it says, The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. 
Therefore, a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Here we have the world under a curse, not just Israel, because of a covenant being violated. That sounds very much like what happens in Genesis. Adam violates a covenant and the world is brought under a curse. And further, if we would bolster this idea, the Adam and Christ contrast that we read in Romans 5 helps us see, likewise, that Adam was the head of a covenant. Christ is the head of the new covenant and represents all who are in him. All who are in him, its righteousness, its life, its glory. And this is said in Romans 5 to be based on the pattern that is set by Adam. In Romans 5, Paul says that Adam was a type of Christ. He is a prefigure of Christ. And so we deduce then that Adam, as a representative of all in him, is likewise the head of a covenant. And so it's clearer in other places in Scripture outside of Genesis, God reveals to us in later Revelation that this arrangement between God and Adam was indeed a covenant. And then when we come back into Genesis chapter 2, we can see that, yes, indeed, that does make good sense of what we read in Genesis chapter 2. It is indeed present here, implied even where it is not explicitly called a covenant. So, for example, in Genesis chapter 2, we have God's covenantal name being used. In chapter 1, you recall the word Elohim is used to speak of God, the Creator. And then in chapter 2, verse 4, as this new section begins, it is now Yahweh Elohim. It is the Lord God. The Lord Yahweh being His covenantal name being employed. And then when we get to verse 15, part of our text this morning, again we have that compound name Yahweh Elohim. The Lord God took the man. His covenantal name is being used for good reason. We also have an additional command given to Adam to not eat of the fruit. And as we'll see, this is a command given to Adam that was above the law of God that had been written on his heart. A unique arrangement, which makes sense. This is part of a covenant. There's also present here the clear threatening of a curse. And if Adam were to disobey and eat, then he would surely die. And as we will also see, there is also a promised blessing before Adam as well. And these are all things that are commonly found in covenants. And so more could be said, but hopefully uh, we'll just, we'll, we'll leave that for now. I hope that's sufficient to show that indeed this is a covenantal arrangement between God and humanity with Adam as the head. And so let's move to look more at what this covenant involved. So second point here, God's covenant with Adam involved general duties. God's covenant with Adam involved some general duties. Verse 15 again. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So after describing for us the garden which we looked at last time, the narrative now picks up again from where it left off in verses 7 and 8 with the creation of man and his being put in this garden. And specifically, we read here that he's placed within it to work it and keep it. And if you recall, I mentioned these words last week and how this working it and keeping it involved more than just physical gardening. Certainly, 
the word for work here can simply mean tilling or cultivating soil. And the various tasks that were involved with working a garden and working the land, it can simply mean that. And Adam very much was called to physically work that land. And maybe just as an aside, we'll just point out here that work was created before sin. Work is before the fall. Work in and of itself is not an inherently evil thing. What is cursed on the other side of the fall is, of course, our work is going to be harder. It's going to be by the sweat of our brow that it's going to be done, but work itself is not in and of itself a wicked thing. So this word work can simply mean tilling, cultivating the soil, the garden. Likewise, the word keep means to have charge of something, to take care of something. But as I also noted last time, these words also frequently have religious significance to them. They are often used to speak of service to God in worship. And specifically, they are used a number of places to describe the work of the priests and the Levites in the tabernacle and in the temple. So Numbers chapter 3, verses 7 to 9, this is one such place. There were told the sons of Aaron, of the sons of Aaron, they were, they were told, they shall keep, there's one of our words, they shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister or serve at the tabernacle. They shall guard, shall keep all the furnishings of the tent of meeting. So again, reminding ourselves of what we saw last time, that Eden is the first sanctuary, the first temple, if you will. Adam's responsibility was certainly to physically work and keep the garden, but also to do this as worship and service to God. He was to preserve the purity of worship in that place. And so it involved not just the physical cultivation of land, but guarding and preserving the worship of God in his sanctuary. And so as we jump ahead and think of Adam and his failure, when he listened to the serpent and disobeyed in the garden, he failed not only just for eating the tree when he was told not to, but as he does that, he's failing in his task of guarding the temple, namely the garden. So we can think of Adam and his general duties to work the land, to guard and to protect the garden in every way, so he has both kingly functions as a vice regent, given dominion over these things and over creation, but he also has a priestly role to guard the purity of this place. Third point, so he had general duties, but God's covenant with Adam involved a specific prohibition. When Adam was created, of course, he had the moral law of God written upon his heart, but here he is given an additional commandment. Something that is added to this, that is specifically for Adam. He is given a command that he would not have otherwise known if God had not revealed it to him. Verse 16, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. So Adam was given dominion over the creatures as we saw in chapter 1. But he was still under the governing hand of God, his creator. God is indeed the lawgiver. 
Adam's authority was not outside of what God had given him. He was still under God's rule. And here he is given a specific prohibition. Adam was permitted, we're told, to eat freely of the many trees of the garden. Trees that we noted last time were beautiful in appearance and good for food. But there is one tree explicitly said not to be touched, and it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you remember back in verse 9, there was the mention of this tree and the tree of life. There were two trees placed in the middle of the garden. And now we're told Adam was expressly forbidden from eating the latter, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what in the world is this tree? We might wonder about it physically. If we think of it physically, we might have a vision of Adam and Eve in the garden eating apples, eating an apple. Of course, we do not know it is an apple tree. We're never told that. It is a fruit-bearing tree. In Revelation, as we'll see, it references a tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit, but it doesn't ever say an apple. This is just maybe another aside. One reason why a lot of pictures are not always helpful. We can get our understanding of the Bible from pictures that are dramatic portrayals that were not actually told any of these details, even if it's not a picture of God himself. But as for what is meant by the knowledge of good and evil, there have been a number of attempts to explain this and understand this. One is the thought that perhaps before Adam ate, he, had, he did not have a concept of good and evil. But I don't think that is sufficient. The law of God was indeed on his heart. Uh, the mere fact that God had given him this commandment would mean he would have at least some sense of good and evil. It is good to do this. It is bad to do that. Death, though he wouldn't have had an experiential experience of death yet, he would know that's bad. He had some sense, some understanding, certainly, of good and evil. Others say that this refers to the experiential knowledge of good and evil. So he knew about it, but if he would eat it, it would bring about an experience of, of good and evil. And certainly we would agree and have to conclude that that indeed happened when Adam ate this tree. He became a sinner. He now had the experience and I can't imagine the, just how horrific of an experience to have walked in perfect harmony with Almighty God and then suddenly to have been found a sinner. He certainly did experience it. But I don't think it can simply refer to that either because of what we find in chapter 3 in verse 22. There God says, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. And of course, God is not an experienced sinner. So certainly Adam did experience good and evil. But I think there's more to this. It seems the best understanding of it is that this tree of the knowledge of good and evil represented a pursuit of knowledge and wisdom that God had not revealed. And that was illicit to them. To eat this tree was to step outside of God's yoke that was good and easy one and was to assert one's own autonomy to become a rival to God himself to seek knowledge and wisdom in a way not commanded by God in a different way John Calvin says that this command was a warning to Adam quote that he might not seek to be wiser than became him 
nor by trusting to his own understanding cast off the yoke of God and constitute himself an arbiter and judge of good and evil. There are certainly truths and knowledge that God has not revealed to us, secret things that belong only to him, and we should not try to pry into them, but trust our God to reveal to us that which is needed for us to know. Adam was to wait upon the Lord, to become wise as God would reveal to Adam whatever God desired for Adam to know. Eating of this tree would be a decision to obtain a wisdom and a knowledge that wasn't God's revealed will for Adam and that he had not authorized for him to do. Adam was to remain under God's authority and not strike out for some illicit pursuit of knowledge and wisdom. And so this specific command added to this covenant of works was that Adam was not to eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Another writer, Derek Kidner, says, As this tree stood prohibited, it presented the alternative to discipleship, to be self-made, gaining one's knowledge, satisfactions, and values from the created world in defiance of the Creator. And so we have this specific prohibition that God gave to Adam in this covenant. And fourthly, God's covenant with Adam involved blessings and curses. God's covenant with Adam involved blessings and curses. A common element in covenants is the presence of blessings and curses. In the Mosaic covenant, we see that quite clearly. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, it is held out before Israel. If they were to obey God, here are the blessings that they could expect. If they were to disobey God, however, here would be the curses that they could expect. And in verse 17, we explicitly see a threatening of a curse if Adam were to disobey God and to violate the terms of this covenant. Verse 17 again says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. It is a warning and a threatening. If Adam disobeys, he would die. As for what is meant by this threat, it is best, I think, to understand that it includes all of the miseries that we would associate with death. When Adam ate the fruit, death began its reign in him and over his posterity. It involves being spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, apart from God's intervening grace. It involves the slow rot and decay of our physical bodies until our eventual physical death takes place. And it includes ultimately, again, apart from the grace of God, what the Bible calls the second death, namely eternal destruction, judgment from God. The promise curse here says, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. It is suggesting that this will follow promptly on the heels of Adam's disobedience. And we will, of course, get to Genesis chapter 3 where we will see this sad curse put into effect. And we will talk about it more at that time. But certainly we should understand then 
that there is immediately upon Adam's eating of it, kindness from God and grace toward him in that the full measure of that curse was not poured out upon Adam right away. But even so, death did begin its wicked reign in Adam and in his posterity. And so we see very clearly here a threatening, a promised curse if Adam was to disobey. So the question I want to consider next is was there a promised blessing if Adam was to obey? Was there something promised to Adam, held forth to him, beyond just simply maintaining the condition that he was in? If there is, then it's clearly not explicitly mentioned in these verses we've just read. We have this curse explicitly mentioned. But I would suggest to you that there is an implied promised blessing given to Adam. And to see this, I want us to consider the tree of life. You recall there was another tree besides this tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden and we breezed past it a little bit last week and I said we'd return to it. Trying to make good on that. So this tree is another somewhat mysterious seeming tree. And in verse 16 of what we read in chapter 2, it would seem to suggest that Adam was permitted to eat of this tree at any time, since the only tree that is expressly forbidden there to eat is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so some do draw this conclusion. Some would even say that he was eating of this tree, while others say, no, he wasn't, but maybe he could have at any time. I would suggest the best way to understand the tree of life is that it symbolized to Adam the goal that was set before him. That is, were Adam to faithfully discharge his duties in this covenant, that is, if he were to obey God, then he would have gained immutable, eternal life at some point. Another way we would call that is glory. And he would have obtained this for himself and for those that he represented. And what I mean by immutable eternal life is that it could not be changed or reversed. Again, at this point in Genesis, Adam has a perfect nature. He's been created that way. He's capable of obeying God. But he is also clearly capable of sinning as well. His perfect nature, therefore, was mutable. That is, it could be changed. Death could yet come to him. Glory... So if we think about what Christ has won for all who are in him, glory involves being established with a perfect and immutable, unchangeable nature in which there is no sin and there can not be any sin at all. So why would I take this view of the tree? Well, in Genesis chapter 3, you can turn there if you want, but in verse 22, after the, the fall... And God has pronounced his curse upon the man and the woman and the serpent and the earth. Then the Lord God said, this is chapter 3, verse 22, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat 
and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So he's barred, Adam and Eve are kicked out of this garden and barred from accessing the tree. The tree is tied here, clearly, to living forever, to not dying. It seems to indicate that the purpose of the tree is to confer a status that is not reversible, an irreversible status, to live forever. And after sin enters the world, it would be horrific in every way for a sinner to receive such, and so Adam is barred from it. And so I would suggest that an implication here is that at some point, if Adam were to complete his and fulfill his covenant obligations and had obeyed and remained in a state of innocence, he would have attained the right to eat of this tree and so gain an immutable eternal life, a quality of life that could not be reversed. The very thing that we do find comes in the new creation in the book of Revelation. So this tree of life, it kind of disappears from here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. We have this final reference to it. But it reappears again in the book of Revelation as we think about the end and the goal of where everything is going and what the end of humanity will be. Early in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord Jesus says, and this is when one of the letters to the seven churches at the start of the book, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So Christ says that he grants access to this tree. And it is clearly the same tree. It says it's in the paradise of God. And that word, that Greek word for paradise is the Greek word for Eden. The Greek word for garden, I should say. So it's clearly a reference to this tree of life that appeared in Genesis. Christ grants access to it, to those who preserve in their faith to the end. And then at the end of the book of Revelation, when we have a description of the eternal state, the new heavens and new earth, in the final chapter of the scriptures, we read in Revelation 22 verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. So again, just note, this river flowing through the center of this eternal kingdom. In the end, this, this river that flowed in Eden. Now we have this river flowing in the eternal sanctuary of God, the new creation. It says, This river through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp or sun, for the Lord Himself will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This new creation is the ultimate sanctuary between God and His redeemed people. And the tree here is said to bring healing. And it's the kind of healing 
such that there will be no more accursed thing that will ever enter this place. Again, it is an immutable, unchangeable perfection. It's glory is what it is. And so Genesis, or Revelation 22 later in that same chapter, verse 14, Blessed are all those who wash their robes, who wash their robes in the blood of Christ, who are believing in him. Blessed are all them so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. I don't think it is right to think of Adam as simply having everything to lose if he were to eat, but really nothing to gain or improve upon. There was an even better condition set before him, namely glory. And his sin means that he and all who are in him, because we are in him and because we have sinned in and of our own accord, Romans 3 tells us we have sinned and fall short of what? We fall short of the glory of God. The goal has not been reached because we are sinners. We fall short of God's glory. Adam fell short of it. We in Adam likewise fall short of it. The reason it is called the covenant of works is that the blessing of life was contingent upon Adam's obedience. It was contingent upon his works. And the curse would come about as a result of his disobedience. And again, this covenant had nothing within it about forgiveness. Here's what you do if you fail. It's just obey and live, disobey, and death comes. Once it was broken, that's it. In Adam and in him, all are under God's judgment. One trespass led to condemnation for all men, Romans 5.18 says. Everybody since Adam is under the curse of this law. We do not have righteousness. We fall short. We are sinners. And so Christ comes then and does what is an astonishing work of redemption. He not only takes the curse of sin and this violated covenant upon himself at the cross and thereby satisfy God's, the fullness of God's righteous judgment against sinners who are in Adam. He also, Christ, perfectly accomplishes the work that was set before him as the true and better Adam, the last Adam. Set before him is the salvation of sinners, a church upon completion of his obedience and works and acts. And he accomplished those in perfection, a work that actually brings many sons to glory, as Hebrews tells us. That is, brings many sons to a state of immutable and imperishable perfection. By one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Adam's act of disobedience leads to death for all that he represented. His act is imputed to us. and We are sinners in our own right. And Christ's obedience leads to life 
eternal life, glory for all he represents, his obedience, his righteousness imputed to us who believe in him. Adam's works failed and bring death. Christ's works are the works that are necessary to bring about life. And his work and the benefits that he has secured, the salvation that he has accomplished, is then distributed to sinners as a gift of God's grace to sinners. And it is therefore received by faith alone, not our works of law. We rest in what Christ has accomplished for us. So our works do not add to what Christ has accomplished. The works of the believer are done in response to this. And in light of God's work in our own hearts, in making us new creatures. And so the great need then for all of mankind is to be found in Christ Jesus. To place our hope in Him alone. To forsake our own efforts as any part of the grounds of our own righteous standing before God. And as you do that, as you look away from your own self to the Lord Jesus Christ, know that your standing on solid ground, the only solid ground that there is. This is what Paul gets at in the words of Philippians chapter 3. Paul had done a lot of striving under the law of Moses. Externally, he looked very good. But what he says is, For Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. All those efforts under the law, garbage, he says. I'm looking away from my own efforts. Why? In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. In him, my covenant head. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God, given as a gift of God, that depends on faith. This is the only place to stand. And it is a sure place to stand. It is an understanding, Adam, we can also better understand this work that Christ has done. In Adam, his works alone condemn us. Our works additionally condemn us. We are condemned in Adam. It is in Christ on account of his obedience that we need to be found in him standing in his righteousness that is given graciously by God received by faith alone and so again make this your boast today make this your boast 20 years from now 80 years from now however long you live there's no other there's no other hope one is either in Adam or one is in Christ Jesus and so look again to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks and praise. We know that in Adam all die. This is what your word proclaims to us. 
And it is an inescapable fact of reality as we look around us. Death comes to all men. And so, Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have not left us simply under the violated terms of the covenant of works, but you have sent your Son to establish the new covenant in his blood, in which he has done the righteous work. He has performed the act of obedience that brings many sons to glory. Father, I pray that we would joyfully and gladly look to him in faith. Look away from our own sins, many and great as they are. Renew us, O Lord, and help us to lift our heads. Father, if any are here struggling under the weight of their sin, struggling under the weight of the law, Father, grant them faith and strength to look to Jesus to look to his act of righteousness, to look to your grace that gives that righteousness to us kindly and freely in Christ Jesus by believing. And Father, we pray that you would indeed use these truths to stir up in us such great longing to know you more, such great thankfulness that we would long to walk in that newness of life and do battle with the sin that yet remains and with our flesh all looking ahead to that day when we will experience the fullness of immutable, eternal life. That day when we will be with you forever, where no cursed thing will ever enter ever again. Father, we thank you for your grace to us in Christ, and we give you praise in his name. Amen.